Thank you for reading. Anthony shared a great message last week. Uh, we were looking at these M's, these different ways that we can be fruitful on our front lines. So our front lines are those places where around people that don't believe in Jesus, how can we be blessing them? And there's these six M's, and so we're working through these M's one week at a time. Uh, I took the first week modeling godly character, and that's a way to kind of add credibility to our faith, uh, to uh, kind of show that, you know, we've been changed by the message of Jesus. So uh, that adds to our message. And then Anthony preached the second week on making good work, that when we serve others, when we go to our job and we do a great job, or uh, when we, you know, do our simple task day by day as if unto the Lord, that can be a way that God uses us every day to bless other people and that can bring him glory and it also adds to our witness in the world. Now today we're, we're looking at ministering grace and love. Andy already introduced it. And I'm excited to look at this passage, the story of the Good Samaritan. It's a, it's a challenging passage, but I pray the, the Lord is going to speak to you through it. So let's say a prayer and invite God to, to speak through it. Father God, thank you for this opportunity to, to share your word, to share a story, the parable of uh, the Good Samaritan. We're so grateful for you um, putting your words in the Bible, and now we get to hear them afresh, hear them anew in our context, and I pray that you would uh, use whatever words I speak to, uh, to challenge, uh, but also to encourage. Uh, it's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen. So when you think of a Samaritan, what do you think of? Maybe you uh, think of people who serve and care for others. Uh, Samaritan's Purse, you've probably heard of them. They're an international organization uh, that are dedicated to uh, providing for people's needs and, and, and time of needs. They're an international relief organization. Uh, maybe you've helped do the, uh, the Christmas boxes. Uh, that's one of their programs, Operation Christmas Child. Uh, currently, they're also helping aid the Syrian refugees. And even more recently, they were down in Haiti uh, helping uh, kind of provide disaster relief after the hurricane. See, a Samaritan is someone who helps those in need. And that's true in our context as well. Maybe some of you who live more locally or who have traveled down to Cape Cod every summer, you're familiar with uh, the Samaritans on the Cape. Uh, they have signs at bridges, and they're really uh, an organization uh, dedicated to providing care and a need for those people in times of crisis down at the Cape. So if someone's feeling suicidal or just needs someone to talk to, they can call them. Apparently, you can even text message them, and they will try to give you the help you need. See, a Samaritan is anyone who is willing to help others in time of need. As Christians... We're supposed to do this too, aren't we? This is really uh, kind of the first point of our passage today, that as Christians, we know we're supposed to love our neighbors. This isn't a foreign concept to us. We're supposed to show them grace and compassion. Now, Jesus gives this, uh, this point as kind of, uh, he's going to make this point in the story of the parable, uh, in the story of the Good Samaritan, uh, but first he has this interesting dialogue with an expert in the law. 
Before he begins, the expert asks him this question. Maybe it's a question you've thought about too. What must I do to get eternal life, to inherit eternal life, to go to heaven, to to have uh, a life that lives beyond this one? And Jesus asks him a question instead of just telling him the answer. He kind of asks, well, what do you think? He says, what does the law say? The law is the, uh, the, the first five books the, uh, of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. He asks him, well, what do you think the law says? And you know what? The expert in the law, he has the right answer. <laughs> he, he knows the right answer because he, he has been studying the law for all of his life. He's a scribe. A scribe's job was literally to kind of uh, transcribe, to to write down the Old Testament. Uh, It was their job to preserve and to protect the scriptures. Uh, We have the scriptures today largely because they did a good job of passing it down generation from to generation. Now, some of you that know the story of the New Testament, you know about the Pharisees. Well, scribes or experts in the law were almost always Pharisees. So there was two different camps. There was the, the Sadducees who uh, kind of uh, took a more liberal approach to Scripture, but then there were the Pharisees who were very conservative. Uh, they, they loved the law, and they wanted people individually to obey the law, but then they also wanted the whole nation to obey and honor the law. And so it's no surprise that he knows the right answer. So what must I do? Well, what does the law say? It says to love God and to love others, to love your neighbor. In fact, uh, this, this expert, this scribe, we don't even know his name. He's actually quoting or uh, he's making reference to two Old Testament verses. The first one is Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Now, if some of you are reading the passage really closely, you'll notice that he adds a word. Yes, he says, love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then he adds one more. He says, and with all your mind. See, this, this, this man is so dedicated to the Old Testament, to the law, that he is willing to say, you know, it's your whole being. Yes, it's your, your heart, your mind, but it's, it's your whole essence. Everything about you should love God and put him first. This man has the right answer. He has the correct answer. And then he also quotes Leviticus 19.18. You can write this down in your little insert. It's not printed in there. But Leviticus 19.18 says, do not seek Uh, revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So this is a section of the law saying you got to love God and you also have to love your neighbor. Jesus says, well, you have the right answer. You clearly know what it takes to inherit eternal life. But the the man seeks to justify himself. In other words, to kind of make sure that he is okay with God. But he's also testing Jesus. He wants to kind of prove that he's smarter than Jesus. And so Jesus is going to go into a story. He asks another question. This man, this expert asks, well, who is my neighbor? Notice he doesn't ask, 
how to love my neighbor. He says, who is my neighbor? See, this man, this expert, although he has the correct answer in his heart, he doesn't really have the right answer. He doesn't really know how to love his neighbor. He doesn't really know who his neighbor is. Now, he just quoted a verse, Leviticus 19.18, and it sort of defines who your neighbor is, right? It says, anyone who bears a grudge among your people. In other words, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. That's kind of who this expert in the law assumes your neighbor is. It's people that are kind of in my region, my geographic vicinity. It's the people that look like me, the people that talk like me, the people that I naturally like, the people I naturally get along with, the people I do business with. Those are my neighbors, But Jesus is about to define neighbors as someone entirely different. (laughs) But we're not quite there yet. Jesus defines our neighbor. He he defines it in verses 29 through 35. So we're going to look at this definition. Jesus defines our neighbor as the last person we would expect. And we're going to go a little deeper in a moment. But this is how Jesus defines it, as the last person we would expect. Now, he does this by telling a story, a parable, of a Jewish man who is going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, we don't know if he's a a Jewish man per se, but uh, it's kind of assumed that if he's traveling from Jerusalem, which is the capital of uh, Judea, it's kind of their their center, it's where the temple is, it's where everything that matters is. If he's traveling to Jericho, he's probably a Jewish man. And he's walking along a path, this path, this roadway that goes from Jerusalem to Jericho. It descends from about 2,500 feet above sea level to 800 feet below sea level. And there's, it's a dusty, dirty, rocky, dangerous path. Because there's plenty of places for robbers to hide so they can form an ambush. And we can imagine that as he's coming around a corner on his way to Jericho, robbers do jump out and they attack him. They don't just steal his money. They don't just steal some of his possessions. They try to steal his life. They strip him of all of his garments. They leave him naked in the road, beaten and bruised and half dead. Garments were valuable possessions in that culture. And if you took a garment from someone, they might, they might die overnight. They might freeze to death. This was devastating. As he's lying there, perhaps he's thinking, well, who will ever come to save me? And in the distance, a man is coming. Maybe he sees him. Maybe he doesn't. But as the, as the man gets closer, it's clear that it is a priest. Now, this is good news for the man who's just been mugged because, well, a a priest, a priest is a religious professional. See, priests are the descendants of Aaron. Aaron was the first high priest in kind of the nation of Israel, among the, the Hebrews. And his descendants were called, were appointed to serve in the temple, to kind of oversee the worship of the whole nation, to kind of mediate or negotiate kind of the relationship between God and people. This is a significant person who's coming along the road. They're considered upright. They're considered pure. They're holy. They're godly. They're the kind of people you want to be or you want to have friends who are these kind of people. So you would assume, ah, I am saved. But there's a verse 
In the Old Testament, Leviticus 21, verse 1, where it says a priest cannot make himself ceremonially unclean by touching a dead person. Priests are supposed to stay pure. They could touch some of their relatives if they had died, kind of preparing them. But ultimately, they're called to be pure, to be holy, because they're in God's presence all the time. And if they go into God's presence and they're unclean, if they're stained by sin, God is going to strike them down. And this priest, as he gets closer to this man who's half dead on the ground, he doesn't want to take the chance of touching him. Because if he touches a dead body, well, he becomes ceremonially unclean. And, well, he has temple duties that he has to attend to, that he has to to get to. And it would be an inconvenience to try to go through the whole uh, ritual purity again. In fact, Jewish tradition says that even if your shadow... So you can kind of look at your shadow. If your shadow falls over a dead body, then you become unclean. And so instead of coming closer, he goes further. He walks along the far side of the road. He doesn't stop to help. Now, I want us to imagine another situation uh, in our context, in our environment, uh, kind of a, a frontline situation as you'd have it. Imagine that you have just pulled into Market Basket, and it's one of the busiest times of the week, a Sunday morning, and you're about to go shopping. And there is literally no parking spot in all of Market Basket except for one. And you pull into that parking spot just in the nick of time. You you breathe out a sigh of relief, and then you hear a blaring car horn right behind you. And a man starts to yell at you, yelling something about, well, that's my spot. I was about to pull in there. He begins to cuss at you and to make you afraid, not how you want to feel on a Sunday morning at Market Basket. And you're kind of getting nervous. You don't know what to do. But you look around and you see, ah, Pastor Jonathan is walking out of the Market Basket doing the Sunday morning grocery shopping because we know that's what he does. And he walks out, and you're like, oh, well, he'll come, he'll help, he'll, he'll go and talk to the man who's uh, yet blaring on his horn behind me uh, to kind of, you know, set things straight. And what do I do? I just duck my head, I load up my groceries, I get in my car, and I drive away. And you're like, uh-oh, <laughs> what's going to happen now? This is kind of the picture we receive in the story. You would expect me to stop, wouldn't you? You'd expect any sensible person to stop. And help. Now, in the story of the Good Samaritan, another person comes along, doesn't he? Another person comes, and perhaps he, he saw in the, the distance, oh, here's another figure, maybe this person will stop and will help me. You know what? It's a Levite. Praise God. It's a Levite. Levites are upright. They're godly. They're strong. They're tough. See, it was the Levite's job to assist the priest in the, uh, the work of the temple. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever seen like Mike Rowe's dirty jobs, but he pretty much, the, the Levites kind of did Mike Rowe's dirty jobs. They were often sacrificing lots of animals. So they were getting bloody. And uh, when there was a tabernacle, a tent, they would move that around. They would have to carry items and, and move it. And in our setting, in the temple of Jesus' time, they were responsible for kind of temple security. They would kill people, uh, foreigners, if foreigners entered into some of the courts at the temple. 
So you would think, oh, if you've been kind of messed up, if you've been wounded, you want a Levite to come along and help you because they'll take care of you. They know how to deal with people that have been uh, bloodied up. But this Levite just walks on by, leaving this, this Jewish man dying in the road naked. Why does he walk by? Maybe he doesn't want to become ritually unpure either. Now the man in the vehicle has gotten out of his vehicle, and he is standing right next to your window. And he has begun to slap on your window, saying, you need to move your car because this was my parking spot, and I want to go shopping at Market Basket on a Sunday morning. But unfortunately, he's parked right behind you. So you can't get out. You can't move. You're, you're, you're beginning to fumble for your cell phone, and you're, you're wondering, oh, where, where's my cell phone? Am I going to have to call the police? Is this person going to break my window? But that's when you see someone pull into this parking spot that, that Pastor Jonathan just left. And behold, it's Jenny from church. And Jenny, I asked her if I could put her name, and she knows karate. She is a black belt. And you think, ah, yes, Jenny can fight. Jenny's going to fight this man away. Jenny's a good churchgoer. I've seen her at church, but then she just ducks her head, makes a beeline for Market Basket because she doesn't want to deal with it. And you think, "Uh uh-oh, what's going to happen now? Now, in our story, this, this man would have felt desperate. He would have felt lost. But praise God, there was a, a third figure in the distance, a third figure coming. But as this figure gets closer, he lets out a sigh of disappointment, a, a desperate sigh that he is going to die in the road because this figure is a Samaritan. And if there's one thing Jewish people know about Samaritans, it's that Samaritans don't like Jewish people, and Jewish people don't like Samaritans. See, they have a long history of not getting along. See, a Samaritan is the least person you would expect, the last person. Now, in in our context, as Jesus is telling the story, his audience would have liked the story up until this point. Because there was, you know, kind of this anti-clerical sentiment that's not so unfamiliar from today. You know, oh yeah, of course a priest would walk by. They're no good. Of course a Levite would walk by. But you would expect the third character to be your ordinary Jewish citizen. A man or a woman, and they're just your average Jew, and they're going to stop and they are going to help. But instead, Jesus shocks them and says, no, it's a Samaritan. Samaritans and Jews, they don't get along. Now, in our context, a Samaritan is a a positive term. It's a positive reference, but not in theirs. Now, to really explain the difference between uh, kind of your average Jewish person and a Samaritan, I'm going to show you two maps, all right? So I'm going to put two maps up on the screen. Now, first you look at the left map, which is uh, kind of Israel in the Old Testament. Now, the nation of Israel, uh, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, they were divided up into kind of two regions, two kingdoms that sometimes got along and sometimes didn't get along. The northern region, the northern kingdom, uh, was Israel. The capital is Samaria, and the, the southern region is Judah, and the capital is kind of Jerusalem, where everything goes on. 
Now, in 722 B.C., so that means 722 years before the birth of Jesus, a nation called Assyria came in and attacked northern Israel. And they took many of the people, many of the people in Samaria, into captivity, into bondage. In fact, they took some of the, the, the wealthiest and the, the brightest. And then they, they not only kind of took them away, but then they wanted to really kind of erase the identity of northern Israel. And so they colonized it. They sent in uh, kind of internationals from other countries, other places, and they sent them there to inhabit it. And so the people of northern Israel, kind of the, the, the region that would in the New Testament become known as Samaria, they're a mix between kind of Jewish ancestors uh, that, that are related to them, uh, the descendants of Joseph actually, and they're internationals. And, and uh, it actually says, if you read in the Old Testament in 2 Kings, uh, it says, that, well, they were worshiping false gods in northern Israel. So the, the, kind of the effect of having people come in from different regions is you start worshiping idols. You start uh, kind of practicing paganism. And it says that lions began to kill people because they were worshiping the wrong god. And so the king of Assyria, he actually sends a priest back to, back to Samaria, back to northern Israel to, ter- to teach them about the worshiping uh, Yahweh, to, to worship the one true God. And they adopt Yahweh, but they continue to worship their pagan, their false religions, their false gods. So they're worshiping kind of a mishmash of, of gods. And then they create their own priesthood because, well, Jerusalem won't let us uh, worship at the temple. So we're going to create our own priesthood. Uh, we have uh, our own sort of Bible. We, we, have our old, own, we have our own Old Testament. They only uh, read the first five books of the Old Testament. They ignored the rest of the books of the Old Testament. So there's a lot of differences between the two uh, kind of regions, and when Israel, uh, when Jerusalem and Judea, they also get into captivity. So another nation, Babylon, comes and takes away the southern region, okay? But they, one, day, one day they come back about 70 years later, and, and their temple's been destroyed, and they're going to rebuild their temple. And Samaria, the, the Samaritans, they come down and they offer to help. They say, well, we'll help build the temple. And they're called the enemies of Judea. They're called the enemies of Jerusalem. And so uh, Jerusalem, the Jews, they reject them. They say, no, we're not going to have you help. And there kind of is this long conflict between the two going down through the generations because the Jews look at the Samaritans as heretics. And Samaritans probably feel the same way. In fact, a king, uh, a Maccabean priest and king named John Hyrcanus, he kind of goes on this holy war, and in 128 B.C., he travels to Samaria. He, he travels, and he just makes war against them, and he destroys their temple. See, the Samaritans, they had to build their own temple because they couldn't go to Jerusalem, and John destroys their temple. You know, make friends by destroying people's temple is not the, not the way to do it. Many years later, about 100 years later, Samaritans sneak down into Jerusalem, into the temple, and they, they scatter human bones in the temple at Jerusalem to defile the temple. See, the Samaritans and the Jews, they didn't like each other. If there was one person who was coming down the road who you knew would not help you, who would let you die, it was a Samaritan. Samaritans are the last people we expect. He's the last person you would expect to take pity on him. 
The priest and the Levite, they hardened their hearts, but he took pity on him. He bound his wounds. He gave up costly oil, costly wine to, to bandage him, to, to treat his wounds. And then he put him on a donkey. The, the donkey, assumably, that he was riding. And he begins to walk in the dirt as the wounded person rides on the donkey to the inn. And if that's not enough, he doesn't just dump him there. He makes sure that all of his needs are taken care of. He pays two denarii, which was two days' wages that could pay between 10 and like a month of nights at this, this inn. And he says, if there's anything else that this, this man needs, well, charge it to my account. I will take care of him. See, the Samaritan is the one you least expect. Now, you're afraid in your own story at Market Basket. You're afraid. You're terrified. Uh, you're bursting into tears. You're worried that your window is about to break. The man is still there. He's still pounding on your window. And out of nowhere, a six-foot-tall black woman comes in swinging her purse. She knocks him out of the way. She sends him fleeing to his car. And he goes driving out of there, screeching out of the parking lot. And she comes back to your window, asks if you're okay. You roll it down. She comforts you. She gives you a tissue. And she sits with you for a little while. And then she says, well, let's go shopping. And so she walks with you into Market Basket, even though it's clear she's already done her shopping. Her name is Gloria. And you begin to hear Gloria's story. See, she stood up for you. She, she fought back for you because she's felt picked on. She's felt singled out as well. She, re she recently walked in a Black Lives Matter protest. In fact, she helped organize it. She's one of the, the organizers in the local chapter. She wants to fight racial injustice. She felt like yours was a situation of being picked on, injustice. You learn, as you talk to Gloria, that her name used to be George. She used to identify as a man. She used to be a boy. As she got older, she didn't feel like that's who she was. And so now she identifies as a woman. And everything's not going well for Gloria. Uh, the, the, the joblessness among the transgendered community is twice that of your average worker. She doesn't have a job. She's been looking for one for months, but most people won't hire her. And you talk with her even more. You learn that Gloria actually grew up in a church. She was part of the AME, the African Methodist Episcopal Church. As you tell her about Cornerstone, you kind of relate. You talk about singing like the gospel songs. She grew up singing those songs. But she tells you she has not been to church in years because she's afraid. She's afraid of what God thinks of her, and she's afraid of what people at church would think of her. In our context today, this is an example of a good Samaritan. Gloria is that good Samaritan, the one we would least expect to come to our aid. Gloria is my good Samaritan. Gloria is the one I would least expect, the one I would feel the most uncomfortable with in my everyday Jesus ends by asking the expert in the law, the, the man who is supposed to know every single Old Testament answer, every single Bible answer, he asks him, so which one is the neighbor? 
He's asking him, is the priest the neighbor? Is the Levite the neighbor? Or is the Samaritan the neighbor? And the, the expert in the law is so disgusted. He's so uh, turned off by Jesus' story that he cannot even say the Samaritan's name. He says, the one who had mercy. Which is our neighbor in this story? The pastor or the churchgoer? Or the black transgendered Gloria? See, Jesus calls us to do something. He calls us to go and to love those who least expect it. How does Jesus end the very last words? He says, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. This means reverse the story. He reverses the situation. So if we imagine Gloria was in trouble, would you go and would you help her? Would you stand up for her? Would you minister grace and love to her? Or would you walk by on the other side of the road? Now, we don't all have Glorias at the local grocery store, at the local market basket. But we sure do have people in our own lives that are tough to deal with, don't we? We have Grant, a coworker who just messed up. He messed up the job so much he deserves to get yelled at. He deserves to get fired. Well, how in this moment why might we minister grace and love? We also have Merediths. This is the name I chose before I heard your story. Merediths who live next door and keep encroaching on our property. Those people around the neighborhood that you're just like, ah, you know, when, they, when you see them, you kind of duck your head and walk by. Sometimes I think I'm that person in my neighborhood. Who do you find it's hard to get along with? It's hard to, to love, to show grace to. That's our Samaritan. That's the Samaritan in your life that you're called to minister to, even though it's not easy. Even though it's incredibly difficult and it's messy. There are so many differences between a Jewish person worshiping God at the temple in Jerusalem and a Samaritan worshiping whatever up in northern Israel. There are so many genuine, uh, real theological differences that one is worshiping the true God and one is not. And in our context, there will be differences between you, between the person that you are called to love. There will be real and genuine sin issues that you can't affirm, you can't condone, but you're called to love them, to love them unconditionally. The interesting thing is, as we get nearer to those people that are hard to love or that, that are clearly sinning in our lives, the closer we get to them, kind of the, the ickier we sometimes feel. And we can no longer depend on our own self-righteousness. <laughs> We can no longer depend on our own goodness, on our own cleanliness. We can't depend on our obedience to the rituals. We have to start depending on the gospel, on the good news of Jesus Christ, and that he forgives us day by day because I might be blowing it in this relationship. I might be relating the wrong way. And that's why every day I'm going to depend on the gospel as I love this person, remembering that Jesus has taken away all my sins, I'm going to count on him to keep me going. See, Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything he didn't do in his lifetime. 
Jesus was accused by the religious professionals, by the Pharisees, by, of being someone who ate and drank with sinners. Tax collectors too. But you know what the word for sinners mean? It means prostitute. It was a euphemism, euphemism in their context. It means prostitutes. He was hanging out with prostitutes. You imagine how that looked to the other upstanding Jewish people? It looked pretty bad. But Jesus did it because he knew that the kingdom of God is for them. It's for broken people. It's for lost people. It's for people that don't know Jesus yet. That's who the kingdom of God is for. He calls us to love them, love them sacrificially, love them, it's hard, but he calls us to do it. My big idea, my main point is love those who least expect it with the kindness of the king. Love people with Christ Jesus, relying entirely on him, sharing him with others. See, Jesus loves you and me. And in our story I think it's clear to me that Jesus is the good Samaritan. He's the ultimate good Samaritan. See, just like the victim in this story, you and I, we're dead in our transgressions. We're dead in our sins. Without God, we are completely lost. And Jesus, of his own free will, he came along and he forgives us. He binds up our wounds. He, he, he heals us. He sacrifices for us, And the way he does this is by paying the ultimate price, by dying on a cross, by sacrificing himself for us, for becoming, becoming beaten and bruised by robbers. We become the robbers in this story. Jesus was also stripped of his garments. He was left for dead, but on a cross, and no one came to rescue Jesus. Not his friends, not the 12 disciples. None of his followers came to rescue him. None of the Romans came to rescue him. Not even his father came to rescue Jesus on the cross. Because he had to pay the penalty for our sins. That's how serious our sins are. He died, but then praise God, three days later, he rose back to life again. <laughs> See, Jesus, Jesus has the eternal life that that expert in the law wanted. Eternal life is not an answer, it's a person. <laughs> It's Jesus Christ. And Jesus doesn't say you have to be the good Samaritan in order to, etern to, to, to earn eternal life. He says, I am the good Samaritan. I give you eternal life. And then through your life, I'm going to change you into a good Samaritan-like person. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message of Jesus. I don't know where each of you are on your journey. We're all on a journey Maybe you feel like that person who's been beat up, who's in the road. Maybe you, you know, relate more with the priests or the Levites that walked by. I definitely relate with the priest. But we're called to have a change of heart. To receive the kindness of the king and then pay it forward. Love those who least expect it with the kindness of the king. I want to share just a brief closing illustration of an example of a story in real life. This July, something terrible happened in Texas, in Dallas. A heavily armed man killed five police officers. The next day, so that was a Thursday, the next day was a Friday, and so headlines are this awful tragedy. And there are several police officers uh, getting food, getting dinner at a diner in Pennsylvania. And the waitress brought a man and a woman to sit across from their table. And they refused to sit across from them. 
They said, we don't want to sit next to these police officers. So the waitress had to take them somewhere else. The officer, his name is Chuck, he made eye contact with them and said, you know, we're not going to hurt you. We don't want to attack you. But they still refused. And so that officer paid for their tab. He paid their bill. If you know Jesus, if you've put your faith in him, you've gone through life before you ever met him, rejecting him. And day by day, we often reject him too. But he has paid our bill. He has paid our tab in full. He has paid for all of our sins. Now he calls us to go and to show the same kindness, the same love to those around you as a reminder of what he has done for you on the cross. It's a reminder of what he has done for me as well. Love those who least expect it with the kindness of the king. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for this story. It's a hard story. It's an incredibly challenging story, but it's a good story. Lord, help us change the way we need to change. <laughs> help us to love those that, that don't expect it from us. And that we don't expect that we could ever love, but your Holy Spirit empowers us in such a way that we can love them. Lord, I pray for the offering. Would we be good stewards as a church of your monies? Would we use it to build, you know, yes, this church, but ultimately your kingdom to, to bless our front lines, to, to bless the upcoming trunk or treat, Lord? Would people come to know you as their Lord and Savior through the trunk or treat, through our front lines? In Jesus' name, amen.